0: what does it take to be a top-performing entrepreneur? Welcome to Inspiring Business Success, a podcast sponsored by Insperity, where we'll explore areas of entrepreneurial success and extraordinary professional performance. There is an abundance of good performers, but what about exceptional performance? This season, we will be exploring the defining characteristics of exceptional performers in business and in life. Inspiring Business Success is sponsored by Insperity. Insperity provides human resources solutions that make a difference in the success equation for the best small and medium-sized businesses. If you want to know more, go to insperity.com. Are you ready to reach new heights in your performance? Let's go to the studio now with Larry Schaefer, Senior Vice President of Marketing at Insperity, Dr. David Cook, author, speaker, and well-known sports psychologist, and Doug Tatum, author,
1: professor and entrepreneur now
2: let's look at how do we make those goals tangible so we've got to make sure that when we're working on a mental goal that we create um, we create a process that's measurable and so as we as we think about what we want to accomplish and how we want to get there, the next thing we need to do is, is create something that we can see, something that we can, you know, taste, touch, that is right there in front of us. That basically in the midst of performance, it's, um, it's guiding us or actually coaching us. One of my favorite things to do, um, I work with a lot of golfers, a lot of PGA Tour players. And in the last podcast, we talked about this concept of sort of the neuropsychology performance. It's a see and it's a feel and it's a trust. See success, feel what that vision looks like and then trust. Rather than doubt, let it go. Be free. We're trying to get to the point where we're free to allow this great talent in us to come out. So when I'm working with a player, like a you know a golfer, uh, a lot of them, well all of them, mark their ball in a professional event. So when they get to their golf ball, because they all you know a lot of them use Titleist or Callaway or whatever it might be, they need to look down and know that's their ball. So they all kind of have a unique marking on their ball my idea for them is what can you look at when you walk out in the fairway and you find it's your ball, instead of having a dot on there, you know, a blue dot, is there something that you could do on that golf ball that speaks or coaches to you? Because what I want them to do, as we talked about in that last podcast, is to have a specific goal of putting your mind in position to succeed over a shot. So how can I do that? How can I make that tangible, you know, so that I can, I can see it and do it? And so when they before they start, I ask them to put S-F-T on their ball, see, feel, trust. That's the goal. That defines for them what it means to put their mind in position to score. So they hit it out there, and when they go and they look down on the ball, the ball is coaching them. It's screaming back at them, do not hit a shot without see, feel, trust, without going through that. And the objective in the round, in a tournament round, is to put your mind in position over each shot. And so that's the score. That's the specific scores we talked about last time. How many, if I have 70 shots, how many of those shots did I literally do that? Well, I need some help out there because it's four and a half or five hours of, of interference and adversity and, you know, ups and downs. But every time I look at the ball, it's telling me this is your goal. It's tangible. It, I can see it. And so that's their objective then. It's not the outcome like we talked about. It's did I go through this process? And so on their scorecard, they keep two scores. They keep the score of process, which is a tangible score. I had an NBA player a couple of years ago. Such a cool story. He he came out of obscurity and got this enormous contract because he was playing so well. Well, going into that year with his new contract, all of a sudden he felt the weight of the world on him because he had to prove that He's worthy of his contract, and he was slumping early on. And so that's when I got to meet with him. We Again, we talked about let's go back to playing free like you did when you had no contract to now you have a, a big contract. The only difference is what you're making of it in your head. So let's go back and, and do what you did before. And so we talked about the concept of see and feel and trust. And I said, listen, you need a tangible way to get into that when you're performing. And I said, you know, I'd ride it on the toe of your shoe or something, so every time you look down, you're reminded. And so this NBA player who gets, you know, a new pair of shoes every other week sent me a picture of his shoe, and he's got SFT on the toe of both of his shoes and ends up having an unbelievable year. He says, it all turned around when I, when in the midst of competition I was able to see a tangible reference to what my true goal was was, rather than focusing on fear or outcome or whatever. It's powerful.
3: You know, Larry, uh, David, it brings an interview that I did with a very interesting gentleman that ended up running one of the biggest music businesses in the United States, uh, retail music, wholesale, and so forth. I said, how in the world did you get in this business? And he said, you know, I was a burgeoning musician. I go into a musician's music shop. I want to buy a guitar. And he says, the first thing they tell me, and I had money. He said, the first thing they tell me, Larry, is I can't touch the guitars because I'm a young kid. And second thing is the guy that waiting on me pulled the guitar down was like Eric Clapton. So I wouldn't have played it in front of him anyway. So I was completely intimidated. So, so what was your, you know, why would you get in the business? He said, I got into business in college with a music store for one reason, which was that somebody would come into the store and never, ever be told that they couldn't touch the instruments. I would never let the musicians play in front of them. And that effectively became the culture of the store. So you're talking about a tangible goal and how to do that institutional. He said that he literally spent three years with a training program to make sure that when somebody walks in that store, they knew they could play with the instruments, they were not going to be intimidated Uh, by the store staff, and that changed the experience and led to a multi-chain store. But what was interesting, he didn't turn around and say, make the uh, customers feel welcome. He got really specific about what that meant. Because a lot of what we're talking about is taking some of these principles that you're talking about that makes an individual successful in a sporting realm. Then how do you get your institutional or your company or your employees to do that, I mean that's a lot of the HR things that that Larry you've dealt with over the years in your company. That hit me that that was exactly the same thing. Until he could articulate specific, tangible goals, and then explain to the employees, the 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 the, the person on the you know waiting on the customer what they were expected to do, there was no difference between him and any other music store. But then he became a super performer. That's a, a great point because I think so many business leaders, you think about them
1: coming out of their MBA or, or whatever, they can set specific goals. Uh, what a great leader will do beyond that is they will set the feel of it. How does it feel, first of all, to them and then to their culture, within their culture and within their people and kind of give that extra step and
2: build success upon that? And they. They keep it in front of them. Any kind of communication they have, they keep that specific goal tangible. They see it. You walk in the building, it's there. It's, it's almost like a, a motto. It's almost a, it's a vision statement or whatever. It makes it tangible. And that's what, you know, you just can't go in a room and create a specific goal and then, you know, okay, we did that. But you want to then make it tangible that you can see it. For the treadmill guy, I gave him the number 28 and told him to put it on his mirror, in his car, whatever. So the next week when he came back, he had been thinking about it all week long.
1: Let's move to the next aspect of, of
2: goals. And
1: that is choosing difficult goals and having really probably, David, the courage to be able to choose difficult goals. Yeah,
2: you got to get past the fear of failure, and, you know, that's one of the things that holds people back, and so you have to have the courage, and again, it's just a mental choice of thinking, all right, you know, am I going to choose something that's really easy, and that's not going to be motivating. Am I going to choose something that's out of, completely out of the ballpark, that's, you know, that's going to be exasperating. Goal setting is an art. i got to choose something that's difficult, that stretches me, but it's not completely out of the picture. For the Marine, uh, in the story that we shared earlier, is that... Um, I would add a certain amount of time or ask him to meet the time from the week before, but I'd added a few seconds (laughs) and, um, but it stretched him, you know, and I was just, I don't know. I mean, it was an art, you know, I I picked a minute and absolute agony and he did it, but you know, goal setting is an art. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pro golfer, you know? And so I got a scholarship in college and played and um, you know, I was, I was, it was difficult. It was a difficult goal, but I thought that's what I wanted to do. And I remember one day when that door closed. And that's the thing about goal setting. Some people will stay with a goal even when um, it's, you know, life changes, talents were just, different talents were discovered, new doors were open. And what we have to do is know it's an art and be able to redirect our goals but continue to have, you know, a difficult stretching goal. And so when I finally gave up the goal of being a professional golfer, the next goal was to attain a PhD in a field that would literally help people become the best they could be in, you know, in golf and sport and business and in life. And so that was going to be a very difficult goal, but both of those were difficult. I just needed to know when one door opened and one door shut to be able to go through it with the same vigor that, you know, that that you you did the first one. So don't, you know, don't be upset if you need to change a goal, but always make them difficult. Yeah. But that reminds me of uh, a quote I read by Michael
1: Jordan, where he said, failure is an illusion. It doesn't exist to me. So you didn't fail in your initial goal. Uh, You just looked at it as a sign to redirect you towards the goal that ultimately you've achieved
2: yeah. yeah and you know what was interesting is I remember going to Oakmont to one of the most difficult U.S. Opens of all time and I was working with two players that were there you know competing they're inside the rope and you know I work with them ahead of the tournament you know walking down the fairways with them and then on competition day I'm outside the rope with you know them taking the information and applying it <laughs> it was so difficult I mean this was the hardest golf course I'd ever seen at that time, of course, since then, they've they've really created some difficult challenges at the U.S. Open. But I remember at that moment, thinking back to the moment that I decided that I probably didn't have the talent to be out there, but that I could still create a, a way to be involved with people that wanted to be successful. I remember going, thank you, God, that I'm not inside the ropes today, because I, <laughs> I would have shot 90 or 100 or something like that. And, and these guys were, were not only talented, but they were applying the mental skills and able to, to play really, really well. So you weren't inside the ropes, but you got to enjoy all
1: the exhilaration of a victory, in a sense.
2: Absolutely. And these two guys had come to me when they were in slumps or at the bottom of their career and and asked, with the talent that they had, how can, how can I get it to come out in these big tournaments? And you know, they played really, really well. Doug, have you
1: seen this in your experiences as far as setting lofty enough goals to really make a difference?
3: Yeah. And, you know, I'm really, really interested, uh, Larry, in what David was talking about in terms of when he changed his goal. So uh, there's a company called Environmental Medicine Resources. I wrote a case on it. What was fascinating to me was that uh, the company had built a very successful business on a value proposition in the medical world of uh, high touch custom solutions? And the competitive matrix changed so dramatically that the company was poised for failure. If it didn't do something dramatically, and in this case, because they were the largest provider of the service, they had the opportunity to become the lowest cost provider, but without the original bells and whistles. In other words, the original vision for the business was one thing. The changing of the environment competitively required it to do another thing. So it strikes me that a, setting a difficult goal is different than selling setting a completely unrealistic goal. And if you as a leader, as an entrepreneur, set an unrealistic goal, then you're gonna fail. But it sounds to me like what what happens in what happened to you personally is that you turned around and looked at the environment and said, okay, I'm probably not gonna, you know, hit the ball three hundred and twenty yards on a consistent basis. But I have a goal and I can achieve that goal in a different way. You set a realistic goal. It was a hard goal and you achieved it. I think that has applications in business. Uh, You see that all the time, right? Having an entrepreneur run a business right off a cliff because they've set an unrealistic goal as opposed to an entrepreneur like in this case, Bert Prater, who set a very hard goal of conforming the company into a low cost provider, walking away from its original value proposition turned out to be successful.
2: You know, uh, one, of my, one of my greatest stories is with a dear friend of mine, Stan Atlee, who's probably the great, you know, one of the greatest short game, you know, teachers of all time in in, in golf. He came to me um, when he was on the mini tours and just struggling like so many young players are trying to figure out if his goal was too lofty to be a pro, golf, you know, on the PGA Tour you know if he had what it took so he came came in and again we go back to you have talent but how, how do you get it to come out more often on game day so we created the process for him and I you know I said here's what I want at the end of the day whatever you shoot whatever your outcome score is that that that's one thing but I want to know like we alluded to earlier what is your what is your input you know what are you thinking before the ball ever leaves the club head can you go through this process and I gave him 85% of the time. In other words, at the, every hole, you you know, you have an outcome score. You make a par, you put that on your scorecard. Well, under that, I want to know if you, you know, if it was a par 4, how many times on that hole did you go through the process? Did you do it one time, one shot or all four shots? And get, you know, put that number down there. That's called the concentration score. That's called, you know, what your, you know, what 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 your true goal is to see if you are focused on what you said you were going to be focused on. So I challenged him to be 85%. You know, that's a B plus, you know. And so that's not unattainable, but when you think about the interference in the adversity that we work in, in the environment, in business and in sport, being able to control your mind 85% of the time is pretty stinking difficult, you know. And so I challenged, I said, at the end of the day, we're going to divide your concentration score by your outcome score, and there's going to be a grade. So... Again, it's making that mental side tangible and specific enough that you can measure. And so I said, this is, this is what we want to do. So it was, in the context that we're talking about here, a very difficult goal. So he plays this tournament, shoots well, and says, you know, I didn't hit the ball that well, but I'm playing a lot better because I'm thinking better. The next week he plays another mini-tour event, wins it. The following week gets a sponsor's exemption into a PGA Tour event a major PGA Tour event, not like a U.S. Open, but it, you know, a regular PGA Tour event gets a, one of the four sponsor exemptions and goes and wins it. And <laughs> wow. he sends me his card wow. And it, on the winning day. It says 93%. He wanted to prove to himself and to me that he could go beyond being a B-plus player. And he went to 93% on game day in competition with the best players in the world, wins an event, gets a two-year exemption, he's off and running on the PGA Tour. One of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard, but it was a difficult goal that he said, yes, I'll do it, and I'll exceed it. And so he got, I mean, he got an A-. minus. What would have happened if he had gotten, you know, 100%? But that's just how difficult it is in the competitive world of business and sport and life to be able to focus well. Amazing that he was able to do that, but he took the challenge, made it specific, made it tangible, and also, which we're talking about right now, created a difficult but, a, but attainable, you know, goal.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me. I, I'm, I'm reminded of a phrase you said earlier, David, that the situation before us is what we see in our head. You know, and in sports, I can go out with my buddies and play, play golf and have a great time and, you know, maybe beat them on the 18th hole. But if I'm in a true competitive situation and I'm on that same 18th hole, the situation before me really in practical ways is the same, but in my head it gets blown up and that's where I don't perform at the level that I should. And, and you're
2: talking about ways to prepare for such situations. Metaphorically, it goes back to that point. That's the 20 minutes before the trophy celebration. It's a place where you feel will you feel stressed or, you know, interfered with? And that's what we got to be prepared for. If that's our main goal to start with, then it changes our ability to play every shot or walk into any situation. The cool thing about what we're talking about here, sport, business life, you know, applying these things is each of these are just a microcosm of life. You know, we can learn from sport, we can learn from business and take these illustrations and apply them to our life, and we'll be better at whatever we do. That's, to me, fascinating about the last 35 years of working with elite people is to see these dramatic changes and literally how these simple ideas change someone's ability in the heat of battle to become great. So I think to summarize what we've
1: been saying, Doug, is I've seen in business that leaders can come out and make great goals but the ones that really succeed over the long term is they know how to ebb and flow and adjust as they reach different plateaus of those goals or they reach obstacles that in their resolve they determine
3: how they're going to overcome it i agree larry and and uh if they set a vision And they transfer that vision downstream. It's interesting, business is very much a team sport. So part of the issues are taking some of the lessons that we've learned from individual athletes, getting them transported to the leadership of, let's say, entrepreneurial businesses or private equity-focused businesses that have outside investors and constituencies. And then how do you get that institutionalized? Because I think there are enormous parallels. So I want to say folks out there,
1: have the courage to set some difficult goals and stay within these, the reasonable parameters, in a sense, reasonable, but make sure that it's challenging enough and difficult enough and specific enough and specific enough to really get you out of bed and energize you to go after it. Let's talk now, David, about choosing a self-referenced goal. And I got to admit, I don't know if I know exactly what that means, David. So, so tell me.
2: Uh, it's such a powerful concept. We can go through life comparing ourselves to others. That's other referenced. We can compare ourselves to those that are better and always feel bad about ourselves, or those that are worse and always overinflate ourselves. And the greatest competitor that we have is us against us yesterday, me against me yesterday. W- you know why would I? Why would I choose anyone that's not me to compete against, except? you know, to motivate and inspire me, and that's what, that's what we use competition for. But really, isn't our goal to be better than I was yesterday? Isn't it to increase my ability to handle the distractions and the interference and the adversity in competition more today than I, than I did yesterday? And that's what this entire series is about, is teaching us how to use our mind in such a way so that when we're in competition, we're learning to get better and better and have more of our talents to come out. Self-reference. So let's take, let's take an example of, of how can I be better today than I was yesterday. One of the most fascinating sports stories, and I certainly wasn't involved in this because it was many years ago, ever took place in the world was the four-minute mile. So the four-minute mile was approached for a long, long time, for many, many years. And the closer they got to it, they hit a wall. And no one could break the four-minute mile. And finally, the cardiologists and the medical experts of the day said, it's humanly impossible because the heart cannot cannot sustain that much energy um, and pressure and stress put on it for someone to run a four-minute mile. So basically, the great experts in the world were limiting someone's ability to, to reach that. They were saying it can't be done. What's interesting is that there was a young aspiring physician named Roger Bannister that was a self-referenced athlete that began to see this much training led to this improvement. This much training led to this improvement. And if I could, you know, as we go back, create specific, tangible, and difficult goals on each quarter of the mile and accomplish those and move towards those, I'm going to be able to run a four-minute mile. I can predict it. And so he took all of that meaningless information out there that said it can't be done, and he created, I'm an individual, and when I do these things, I improve. So he created a self-reference goal, chose the day, spoke about it, that he was going to break the four-minute mile. That was incredible boldness on his part. Oh, boldness, but it was also as like he, he understood something. I control this, and my training controls this, and I'm a physician, and I disagree. So he gets up that morning. It was rainy and cold. He he called it stupid weather, but he said, we're going to do it anyway. And so he went out to a wet cinder track in the cold, and that day broke the four-minute mile. Here's what's fascinating. So that was a self-referenced goal. All of the people... (laughs) that were running and trying to get closer to the four-minute goal, that were all external, trying to compete against everybody else in the world that weren't self-referenced, finally saw one person break the four-minute mile, and in the next year, the four-minute mile was broken 319 times. (laughs) Is that amazing? One self-referenced individual was able to do it, and then it's like all the externally motivated people go, oh, it can be done, so then they did it. Here's the deal that we're we're talking about in these podcasts is that we have to take responsibility on what our thinking is to be the best that we can be. We've got to take the responsibility of applying these principles. And there's probably not one that's more, you know, personally referenced than this one here. Look at yourself in those areas that you want to get better in and measure yourself yesterday to today And quit worrying about everybody else in the world. Do what you can and what you do well, and we all have sweet spots. Find it and improve against yourself in that sweet spot, and
1: you'll be great. That's almost like the power of compounding interest. I mean, just a little bit of improvement every day. You can look back after several years, and your
3: progress is significant. It is. Larry, uh, that's a very good point. And, and David, it, it strikes me that one of the things having served on numerous boards and uh, growing companies and watching leadership and and studying it, is you talked about the self-reference goals in the context of the distractions and obstacles that you face in a competitive environment. So what's interesting to me is that the tyranny of the urgent is an enormous distraction for leaders running companies. When you take what you were talking about in terms of a self-reference goal, I want to go back and, 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 again, reinforce this notion of setting a practical, or I shouldn't say that, an achievable but hard goal, but ignoring the, the tyranny of the urgent. And, and I will, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later on. One of these, when I think of your definition, I'm also thinking about the responsibility of a leader, to deal with their leadership team around performance versus loyalty. So what's interesting is that we all understand loyalty. You know, we all understand the folks that are around us because they're there, because they're loyal to us. If you're going to achieve these hard goals, it has to be performance. And that's one of the most difficult I would call it self-referencing kind of issues that a leader has to do with is make these hard decisions about what's important and uh, against that hard goal. And, and the tyranny of the urgent just keeps creeping in there. It's like the crowd noise. It's like uh, uh, the weather. That leader's got to be focused on that goal and then make those hard decisions and ignore the tyranny of the urgent. And I mean it was remarkable that it is very sports like in the context of what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, and so often in regards to goal setting, we focus on set your mind on what the goal is and what you're going to do we also need to say by achieving this goal i need to not do this i need to not spend time on this that that's the tyranny of the urgent, that's the that of the urgent. there's so many other competing factors that can distract us from achieving those goals so it's like you, you choose what to think about, yes, but you also choose what not to think about, what to do, what not to do, what to focus on, what not to focus on. Well,
3: you're right. And if you think, obviously, you're, you're a leader in a huge business, even at the entrepreneurial growth level or middle market business, the organization, particularly at the side, is going to reflect the priorities of the leader. And therefore, what you don't do sends a huge message thinking about it, Larry, the way you talked about it, as much as what you are focused on. And purposefully, I guess to a certain extent, David, what you're also, all of what you're talking about is being purposeful about how you approach that and not streetball. In other words, not necessarily all the term instinctively. It's, there's a purpose, purposeful process that by which you can achieve that. And that's really what you're talking about.
2: Absolutely. You know, we can wrap this whole thing up in this. It's not that I'm a goal, you know, goal setter or not a goal setter. The secrets are in what we've been talking about. The secrets that set the great ones apart from the good ones, the excellent, the exceptional ones apart from the others, is the type of goal they're committed to and the type they set. Specific, tangible, difficult, and self-referenced. Folks, you have just received a master
1: lesson in goal setting. Focus is the compass heading that we follow. So the question we'll have next time is where do we get the mental and emotional fuel to achieve our goals? Where does that come from? If you like what you heard, subscribe and share. And thank you for joining us, and we look forward to talking with you next time.